The temps are warmer, you've mowed the lawn, and maybe even turned on the AC a time or two. It's definitely spring. So SpI.com is having their spring sale. Log on now and get local deals up to 50% off before they're gone. SpI.com. This podcast is a part of the Newhoff Media Podcast Network. Until we say good morning in studio to Springfield attorney John Sharp. How are you, my friend? Doing good, Sammy. How are you? haven't seen you for a while in studio. It's been a while. Yeah. You but, were our but, guy for many years and still our guy when it comes to DUIs and things like that. Has that changed a lot? There have been a lot of changes over the years. I know you'd come in on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve show and give us some advice and so on. There are things I haven't heard much change in the last five or six years regarding DUIs and things like that. There hasn't been a lot of changes it's pretty much the same thing yet. Uh, but what we have seen is there's not as many arrests being made out there. Really? And that's due to a couple of factors. One, I think people are getting a little bit more cautious about what they're doing. And people are being smarter. Uh, the other thing is I don't believe law enforcement has the funding to be able to, uh, to have as much traffic enforcement. And we've seen a tremendous cut down in traffic enforcement around Sangamon County and other places. Um, when you talk about the, we'll get advice. We always give them advice. You always give advice. If they're pulled over, suspecting of DUI, what advice do you give them, even before they call you or any other attorney? First thing, be very polite. When the officer approaches your vehicle, be very polite. Just keep in mind that uh, you certainly do not have to take field sobriety tests. You do not have to answer any questions. Um, the, the officer asks you to step out of the car, step out of the vehicle, um, but you don't have to take a breath test. You don't have to take field tests. Uh, you don't have to do any of those things. If you don't do those things, then the officer has little to go on at that point other than maybe an odor of alcohol or what he sees in your eyes, or if he believes he's hearing slurred speech, you may still get a free ride in a squad car. You may have to go downtown, but yeah. uh, um, it doesn't mean that the state's going to have the strongest DUI case at the end of the day either. Okay, if, if someone, uh, walk me through, or if, if you're still involved, uh, someone is charged with DUI, they're found guilty, their license is suspended, and so on. What happens after that? What hoops do they have to jump through? I know it's through Secretary of State. What hoops do they have to jump through to get their license back? If someone doesn't receive supervision for a DUI, if they get a conviction, mm -hmm. then what happens is that conviction triggers a revocation. And but the only way they are, the only pathway toward getting a full license back is to go through a hearing at the Secretary of State's office. You'd have to get an alcohol evaluation. You have to complete all the recommended classes. Um, depending on what level your classification level comes back, if you have to complete 75 hours or more of classes, if it's deemed that you have a high-risk type of an alcohol problem, you have to also be able to show that you've maintained at least one full year of sobriety and that you're continuing to be sober. Most people aren't aware of that. Um, you have to go through a formal hearing process at Secretary of State. There's a hearing officer and a representative for Secretary of State's office, and it's like a mini court proceeding. It's an administrative law proceeding. It takes roughly 90 days for them to get a hearing decision back from when you go through your hearing. Um, if you get a permit, then you have to operate on that permit for a year. You're eligible to go in for a second hearing after nine months. 
And as long as you've done everything correctly, uh, you've taken an, one final updated evaluation and you would be in line to get your full license back. But it's a process and you have to have to jump through some hoops to get there. Give me a ballpark figure of what that would cost. Not necessarily. Yeah, no matter who the attorney is, what, what do you think that the, the ballpark figure to get what's going to cost them to get their license back? I would think by the time you pay for all the classes, yeah. you get the evaluations, I would think probably you're going to be in the neighborhood of 7500 bucks. Oh, my. And oh that, my. that would not be out, outside the realm because some people, they don't, they don't prevail. They don't get a hearing. They don't get their permit after the first hearing. They may have to go and fix some things, go back, talk to their evaluator again. Um, wow. But it can be an expensive oh, sure. endeavor. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know it was to that level. All right, let's talk about supervision. Uh, we've heard a lot of things about supervision. How does that work? How does, what's the procedure if someone wants supervision? A first offender on a DUI normally uh, will be offered supervision. If they end up taking a supervision plea in this county, supervision is for a period of one year. Uh, they have a fine to pay. The average fine is around $1,670. Uh, they would still have to get an alcohol evaluation done. They have to present the evaluation at the time they come to court to enter the plea. And whatever classes are recommended as part of that evaluation, they have to complete those. They have to get their fine paid, and they have to complete a victim impact panel within 10 months. Um, the other counties around the area are fairly similar in how they handle that, but the fines can be can be different. Um, there's a couple of counties who do two-year supervisions, uh, but basically that's the framework for around central Illinois. Um, walk me through the device that's placed in the vehicle. And if you're intoxicated, it will not start your car or things like that. Where does that fit into this whole process? Uh, a lot of people, when they get, if they're a first offender for a DUI, when their summary suspension starts, we don't have driving permits anymore. The only game in town, if somebody wants to drive is they have to put a bait device in their vehicle. Right. It's good for seven days a week, 24 hours a day, if you're operating on a statutory summary suspension. If you get revoked and you have to go through the hearing process at Secretary of State, more often than not, they will have you, as part of any permit they issue, you have to put a machine in your car. It will be for a more limited purpose, though, and it can be for designated hours and designated days only. Uh, they do have a new type of a permit that gives you a longer period of travel, and you can actually use it for up to six days a week, but you still might have to use a bait with that. So as long as, as long as you would be on a permit from Secretary of State, you could have to use that bait, bait machine. There's a device. That's a cost for that device also? There's a cost for that device. Secretary of State gets a, monitor, gets a fee for monitoring the program, and their fee is $30 a month. So if you end up with a six-month suspension on your first DUI, you get to pay Secretary of State $180 if you want to use one of those machines. And then you pay and, for the device itself. And then you pay for the device. You have to rent the device, and every month you have to take the take in your car to have them pull the chip and check the check the device. And it's, it's kind of a... In, intensive program when it comes to what they do there. If they find that there's that you've blown into the machine, if you've blown above a .02, .025 in that neighborhood, 
You may get a letter from Secretary of State. They may want you, want you to provide an explanation about what happened. Really? If they're not satisfied with your explanation, they may add some more time to your suspension. So uh, it, it becomes rather involved. I, I sure this is tried. Why wouldn't I have somebody with me who has not been drinking activate the machine? Well, they've got cameras in them, so That'll they might it. figure that out. That'll do it. Not everybody's as handsome as we are, yes. so yeah, they yes. can figure that out pretty quick. But um, if you have somebody else who's attempting to blow into it, I'm sure people have tried it. I don't think I've ran into anybody I can remember who's tried it, but uh, uh, it's probably not the most practical way to try to get yourself from one point to the other. How how difficult was it practicing law during the pandemic? I think we, I think every attorney had a certain group of challenges because what we're, what we saw a lot of was Zoom became very, very popular during the height of the pandemic. Um, there, we still have a couple of counties in the area who are using Zoom. Christian County is still using Zoom quite a bit. And I just had something uh, with Zoom down in Macoupa not too long ago. They're getting back to doing more in-court type things. But that was one of the biggest things was the the introduction of zoom into what we do on a daily basis and then we had a period of time there during the hard lockdown when really nothing was getting accomplished um pretty much i think things are getting back you know they're they're back to where they were before uh there's still some backlogs i think every every county's got backlogs that were created during that period of time but we seem like we're getting back on track pretty well here in sangamon uh, county especially, uh, Judge Madonia has done a really good job when he was chief judge, keeping it all moving, keeping all the parts, you know, flowing. And it's some of those things that uh, some of the smaller counties, I think, may have had a few additional problems. But so far, we're doing okay. So. Attorney John Sharp visiting with us. It is 18 past the hour. Uh, walk me through a little bit, if you will, uh, how challenging, how difficult is it for people? Obviously, is to raise the money. I, I understand that, but if they're if they get a license back and then they lose it again, is that the end of the line? If somebody goes through Secretary of State and they get a permit, yes. and they go through the whole process. Then, if they pick up another DUI and they go back, Secretary of State refers to them as a, being a recidivist, and it becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, they still have to jump through the regular hoops, but depending on where they're at in the process, how many total DUIs they might have had, uh, they could be looking at being on bade for up to five straight years, depending on what their record shows. And that's five non-interrupted years, where if they have a break, then they have to start all over again. So a person could be on their fourth year and they screw something up and they don't get their hearing application in on time or whatever. They could be right back to square one and looking at five more years again. And it's something that uh, um, most people do their very best to not have to repeat that process if they have to go through Secretary of State hearings and do that one time. I know you also practice Mm -hmm. criminal law and Mm -hmm. you're in court as a defense attorney. Uh, you're not involved at this one, but obviously the first responder situation, how has body cameras, has it changed everything dramatically when it comes to criminal law? 
I think body cameras are definitely something that's changed a lot of what we all do. Uh, we see body cameras where we used to have dash cameras. Now we have dash cams sometimes and body cams. And if you have four or five officers involved, you have four or five different body cams. You get four or five different angles on everything. Um, I know that this situation, there's been a lot of, a lot of video that's been released. My personal opinion, I'm not a fan of that. And people can make up a lot, make up a lot of, uh, a lot of minds get get set in a certain fashion before the before the trial ever has a chance to take place, and I'm not a real big fan of that. I I understand that you know media has a job they have to do, but when you're looking at somebody being able to get a truly fair trial, I think when you have video out like that, that sometimes people have a lot of preconceived notions before they necessarily hear everything that might have gone on. Uh, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, but sometimes testimony can be worth a lot more than that. And I'm just not a fan. I mean, it's going to happen. <laughs> Nobody calls me to ask my opinion of it. But uh, um, I know I've seen some of those, and most of the people that I talk to have seen some of those. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of impact that has when it comes time for jury selection. Somebody mentioned there must have been an article in the paper that I missed, but there was something and things that were said in the article, evidently, and somebody told me, it's ironic that you brought that up, somebody told me, said, Sam, boy, that's almost grounds for change of venue on things that were said in that article or have been said based on video or whatever. Is there some credibility to that? Is there a chance there would be? I don't know what what the article is that you're referencing, but there might be. There might be something that comes up down the road, and if, especially if they start trying to pick a jury, and prospective jurors have watched the videos, okay. prospective jurors have been reading about this, and that comes out during the during the voir dire process, then there may be something that could lead to a motion for change of venue. Uh, that's why the the least amount of information that gets out before you begin jury selection, before you go to trial, the better it can be because you have a more of a pristine jury pool to pick from. But if you're dealing with a situation where something's very high profile and it keeps being played in the news, and that's part of the reason why a lot of cases get continued, they get continued and bumped down the road and bumped down the road till it kind of fades from, from memory. Um, you don't necessarily want to be rushing anything like this in front of a jury. You want to take your time and you want to make sure that, that you've looked at everything. And that's why we see a lot of the delays that we see. I'm not hesitant to talk about this, but I know the situation in Memphis was tragic. It really was. And again, police officers are human beings. Some people probably shouldn't be police officers. Some people probably shouldn't be teachers. Some people, whatever the case might be, we've talked about that a lot. But I wonder if maybe there's just a real strong effort in this country. And I don't know who's behind it. I don't think it's a political party, but might be. But there's a strong emphasis to really diminish the effectiveness or the way people, especially police, do their business. You agree? I would agree. I think the same thing. I think it's one of those things where 
a lot of what we're seeing seems to be targeting our system. Yes. Seems to be targeting our police departments. Seems to be targeting everything our police officers are doing. I agree there's that, you know, not 100% of the police officers necessarily need to be police officers. But I would say 95% of them, when they get up and they go to work, they don't go into work with the idea that they're going to be violating somebody's rights every day. Not the guys that I know. The police officers that that I've dealt with over the course of my career have by and large been people who are in it because it's a job that is also more of a calling. They are very dedicated to what they do for the most part. We get into court and, yeah, I'll pick on them and they pick back. I'll ask them questions and they give me answers maybe I don't like sometimes. But at the end of the day, when we all go out into the hallway, it's one of those things that I know them. I know them how they are when they're not in uniform. I know them as friends, a lot of them. Um, What we're seeing with things like the, and they can disguise it or they can put fancy names on it, but what we're seeing with things like the Safety Act and some of the offshoots of that, I think are I think those things are designed to just tear down our system, and I don't see any other avenue for it because some of these very small counties are going to have a tremendously difficult time if the safety act is upheld, and I really think it's designed to demoralize and to break down the system. But that's just me. I might get some flack for saying that, uh, but I've caught sure. flack before, yeah. so. How long have you been practicing law? 37 years. Where did it all start? Born and raised here in Springfield? Yes. Uh, you were a pretty good friend of Mayor Tim Davlin. Yes. One of your guys. Mm-hmm. What made him special? When he walked into a room, he lit it up. What about him? His, his personality, that was it about? Well, personality was one thing. And second thing, it made him special because, well, Tim wasn't Kevin. And if Kevin's listening, <laughs> I'm sure he's laughing about that. But... <laughs> But that yeah, that's what made you special. <laughs> Unbelievable. Where you, high school here in town? Southeast. Where did you decide to go to law school? When did that happen? In high school somewhere? Actually, I was I was in my sophomore year of college, and uh, chemistry turned out not to be my thing. Yes. I, was, I was wanting to be a veterinarian. <laughs> yeah. And so I had to find something I could do, and I've always known how to talk for a living. So, <laughs> so that's how I ended up in law school. Very good. So. Hey, always thanks for coming in, my friend. Thanks, Sam. Good to see you. Nice to see you. You've been listening to the Newhoff Media Podcast Network. For more, visit newhoffmedia.com.